to be with you all this morning. As I mentioned a moment ago, my name's Matt, and I'm just uh, a guy who goes to church here. Um, so it's uh, great to be gathered with you. Uh, if you're new, uh, we are in the middle of a short series uh, called Why Gather, uh, in which we examine different aspects of our Sunday gathering um, and kind of ask the question, why do we do the things that we do? And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll remember that in week one, uh, we talked about uh, the, the fully functioning body of Christ, uh, that as we gather together in unity, um, but in diversity, all beginning to exercise um, in our own individual giftings, that the body of Christ actually comes to life uh, in a way, and we actually experience Jesus in a way that we never could uh, as individuals on our own. And then in week two, um, Karsh unpacked uh, communion. What is communion? Where did it come from? What would it have meant to the original uh, recipients? And what should it mean to us? And then if you were here uh, with us last Sunday, uh, you know that last Sunday was really a beautiful day in the life of our church as we had uh, Ray and Sue Lowe here from England teaching about the role of the Holy Spirit and the necessity of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives as individual disciples of Jesus and as a gathered uh, body. Uh, so today we continue in the series by addressing the scriptures uh, and why we study the scriptures week in and week out as a gathered church. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1 uh, verse 7 and we'll pick up there in just a few minutes. And um, as you're turning there, I'm just going to pray for us real quick. Um, Jesus, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather as a church, for the opportunity to open your scriptures um, and I'm already, I'm just feeling almost overwhelmed um, with the topic that we have to take on today uh, in such a short amount of time. And so would you um, help us focus in on what it is that you want to hear this morning um, from your word, about your word, and um, would we leave here today with maybe a clear vision of what the scriptures are and maybe even a higher um, vision of what the scriptures are and the role that they should play in our lives. Um, so work in our hearts now, Jesus, in your name. Amen. The book um, that you are holding in your hand or have buried in the circuit boards of your iPhone um, is the most widely published book in human history. 66 uh, individual books containing 1,189 chapters for a total of 31,102 verses. This book was written in a span of time over a thousand years in multiple original languages and on multiple continents. The book that you're holding has shaped and transformed the human story in ways that we can hardly grasp. It has uh, inspired great multitudes of people to do amazing things in this world. And at the same time, it has left uh, multitudes of others completely confused. It speaks to the universal questions that every human being has to ask. How did we get here? Who are we? What went wrong? And what happens next? But what is 
the Bible. And, and why do we study it collectively week in and week out? Why do we spend roughly half of our time as a gathered community on a Sunday studying this ancient text? That is the question that we're after this morning, and I want to start by turning to the Bible itself to see what the scriptures have to say about the scriptures. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few key verses, um, starting in what we call the Old Testament, or the first 75% of the Bible that was written before Jesus showed up on the scene. So the, the Old Testament... Uh, was written largely uh, around uh, a line of people in ancient Israel that we call the prophets, who believed that the story of their people was actually about much more than their people. They believed that it was unique and central to what God was doing and planned to do for all of humanity. And so um, it's full of, of narrative and poetry and words um, that, that God was speaking to them uh, directly, and as the scriptures unfold, we begin to see why they were written. So, you've got all of humanity in rebellion against God. And um, God, um, and, and part of that rebellion was actually kind of defining good and evil on our own terms. And actually redefining them in opposition um, to what true good and evil is. And it was into this world that God called a nation to himself. And that's uh, Israel. And so he, he frees them from slavery in Egypt and what we call um, the Exodus. And they actually called it that too, by the way. Um, and in the very beginning, it's really interesting, he frees them from slavery and he calls them his people. But in the very beginning, he doesn't actually give them a text. Uh, what he gives them in the very beginning is something to reenact. It is something that, that tells the story of their redemption. He gives them a meal. And you'll remember if you were here two weeks ago uh, that this meal was called what? Passover. Uh, the meal was called Passover. And the Passover was a reminder of where they had been and what God had done in real time to free them. And so God leads these freed slaves out into the desert uh, where he gives them another amazing victory, where there's this kind of invading army that wants to overtake them, but God gives them the victory, and then uh, God tells Moses uh, this. He says, uh, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And so that's actually the first reference in the scriptures to the scriptures themselves and how they came about. And the very beginning, the very first purpose that we see in the scriptures for the scriptures is to remember. God says, hey, remember, it was this retelling, this recounting of the acts that God had done in history as he worked to rescue and redeem his people and ultimately his world. So you have that one, and then as you um, progress just a few chapters later, um, God leads his people to Mount Sinai, where he forms a covenant with them. He says, hey, you're, you're actually going to play a role in, in this redemption process of the world. And so he forms a covenant, and they enter this covenant with God, and then God gives them the terms of the covenant. And, and one way to kind of conceptualize this is to think about a marriage, right? Right? A marriage is really the, the only covenant that we have 
left. We have contracts. This is a covenant. And so in a marriage, you enter this covenant, you kind of pledge yourselves to one another, um, but we all know that there's kind of expectations and assumptions that come along with that into what will be involved in the marriage. And, and so um, at the end of this covenant-forming process, as the terms are, are shared, uh, it says this. This is Moses um, told all of the Lord's, told the people all of the Lord's words and laws. They responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Which if you know the story of the scriptures, that's actually kind of humorous. Um, and, and then... It says, Moses then wrote down everything that the Lord had said. And so you have a set of scriptures that are just recounting and recalling the ways that God has acted in history to rescue and love and redeem. And then you have this kind of other set of scriptures um, that, that actually are devoted to describing the covenant relationship. And so that, that's yet another central purpose that we see in the scriptures and so when, when Moses dies, he passes on his role and these writings uh, on to Joshua. And then God speaks to Joshua. Next slide. Or you can read it, actually, in, in uh, your Bible. This is what we turn to. Joshua 1, verse 7, says this. He says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it from to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And the original um, Jewish Bible was called the Tanakh. Can you say Tanakh? And the Tanakh had three major sections. I won't try to pronounce the Jewish versions of them, uh, but translated into English, it was the, the Torah, uh, the prophets, and uh, the writings, and kind of the wisdom literature and all of that. And in the original, uh, in the Tanakh, there were kind of clear divisions between these different sections. And so if you were reading straight through the original Jewish Bible, um, you would have kind of the Torah or the law of Moses. And then um, as you ended that and began the next section, as you started the prophets, the very first chapter of the prophets is right here, or was right there. Joshua 1, the, the passage that we just read. And, and so what we see is within, in this key seam between the first section and the second, God, God actually reaffirms what it is we're supposed to do with the scriptures. He, he says, hey, I, I want you to remember that. I want you to keep this book always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. And, and so God is, is teaching his people, in a sense, how to engage with, with this book that's being written. He's saying, hey, hey, I want you to study this. I want you to memorize it. I want you to, to let it seep into your bones. It's going to keep you on track if you, if you do. And so, uh, for those who are familiar with the scriptures, um, you know how that plays out in the story of Israel, that they, they don't necessarily use it for that purpose, and they kind of lose track of it. Um, but notice that God is instructing them on what the scriptures are for. 
Okay, so you have that at the first seam, at the, at the seam between uh, the Torah and the prophets. But then when you get to the second seam between the prophets and the writings, uh, the writings and the wisdom literature actually started with the Psalms. And uh, the Psalms start with Psalm 1, believe it or not. Um, and, and so when you get to Psalm 1, to the next seam, God is going to reaffirm uh, the, the purpose of what the scriptures are for. And, and, and it should stand out in our minds. If you were just reading through the scriptures in order, you would get to the Psalms. And the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, right? So you're thinking, okay, I'm starting the prayer book of the Bible but it starts with Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 should catch our attention because it's not actually a prayer. It, it, it's more like instructions. This is what it says. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, now that's beautiful, but, but it's not a prayer like the other psalms are. What is this? Well, well, this is telling us, just like the first theme in Joshua 1, this is telling us what the ideal Bible reader looks like. And, and in Hebrew, it, it, it says here that the ideal Bible reader is someone who meditates on his law day and night. And I want to break that down for just a second. Because in Hebrew, uh, the word for meditate was hagah. Can you say hagah? Hagah. And hagah actually meant to mutter or to speak quietly to yourself. Which doesn't go over super well in the, in the modern American coffee shop right? Uh, but this was God's instruction for how his people were to engage with the scriptures. He says, I, I want you uh, to every day, this is kind of the idea behind it, every day for the rest of your life, I, I, I want you to take time to open the scriptures, and I want you to read them quietly and slowly, and, and just whisper them to yourself, meditate on the concepts, and, and let it soak in. And, and don't let it stop there. Then, then you can actually go out and engage with other people and dialogue with them and make more connections and go deeper. But it actually started with uh, Haggah. It started with meditating on the word of the Lord day and night. And, and Eastern meditation, just to make a clear separation in your mind, Eastern meditation, to put it bluntly, is kind of about emptying your mind. Okay? Jewish meditation, Haggah meditation, was actually about filling your mind with the word of God. And, and that was his instruction. That's, that's what you're supposed to do with this document that God has given us. That's how we're supposed to engage. By a show of hands, how many of you have read the Bible in a year? Has anyone read the Bible in a year? Okay, a couple of you. Now, has anyone read the Bible in a year two years back to back anybody one one of us the holiest one among us 
I haven't. I haven't actually. I haven't done this. I've read the Bible in a year, um, but I've never done it back to back. Here's the thing. Because of the way that the Bible is written and the way that God asks us to engage with it, if you were to read the Bible in a year, well, we'll start with just reading the Bible, okay? We'll start there. Um, and then maybe reading it in a year. But if you were to, to, to join Tracy on the, on the upper shelf there, and you were going to read the Bible in a year, two years back to back, here's what I would anticipate for you. That in the course of reading the Bible in a year, which it's like 15 minutes a day or something like that, in the course of reading the Bible in a year, you would be changed. Because of what the Bible is, because of the way that it's written, because of the way that you're supposed to engage with it, by the end of that year, you would be a different person. Changed, transformed, shaped, challenged by what you'd read. Right? But, here's the interesting thing, and, and you can probably confirm this with Tracy, by the time you reached the end of that first year and started the second year, not only would you be a different person, but immediately when you started the second reading, you would start to see things through new eyes. You would notice all sorts of things that you never noticed your first time reading it through. And, and, and that's part of the beauty uh, of this Jewish meditation literature, uh, of this thing that we're supposed to engage. It's absolutely brilliant, the, the way that the scriptures are written. And so Psalm 1, which we just read, it is reinforced by other key passages that are encouraging the same use and engagement. So, so that's a brief um, peek at some of the things that the Old Testament scriptures uh, have to say. And, and all together, across the span of the Old Testament, they tell um, this beautiful story of creation and fall and um, God's rescue and redemption that's already begun and this leader that is yet to come. And, and what we see is that God's actually rescued these people in, in this chaotic and dark world to then begin to restore order and beauty um, to, to the chaos that, that has uh, come about. And, and yet, even as they're doing that, um, they're anticipating that a future leader will come who will one day rule over the created world, no, the universe, and bringing renewal and redemption to all of it. So that's kind of the story of the Old Testament in like 10 seconds. But the interesting thing is that the story, uh, it's a beautiful story, but it's kind of missing an ending. And it's written that way. It's written as this kind of cliffhanger building towards something and then it just kind of leaves you hanging there, waiting, waiting for this uh, leader to show up. And, and then um, you, you get the New Testament, which is written by all of these people who, who kind of encountered Jesus and got caught up in his story, got caught up in what he was doing and they wrote down the acts of God in history from the incarnation to the cross and beyond. He said, God's doing this stuff here and, and it's to be remembered. And, and, and so they, they were writing all of this down and these writers and witnesses were utterly convinced that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish storyline that was captured in the Old Testament. And, and so what you end up with when you put it all together is a collection of books produced over a thousand years that tell one unified story of God working. First Timothy, uh, in the New Testament, says this, says, All Scripture 
is God-breathed and is useful, or some translations say profitable, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This forms our understanding of what the scriptures are. And so we meditate on scripture and we read it and we engage with it and we allow it to speak to us and shape us and we use it week in and week out to do all of this stuff, to encourage and occasionally to rebuke and to transform and to ultimately renew our minds uh, around Jesus and around the, the worldview that the scriptures offer us, the story of God that is captured here. And so what results in that process is that we uh, arrive at, at a community, as a community, at this place of saying, hey, we trust the Bible. Uh, we, we trust it is the anchor of our faith. It is a, the document that we are committed uh, to, to studying as a gathered community. And ultimately, that this document has, uh, has authority over our lives. So when forced to ask the question, why are the scriptures so central to our life as a gathered community, I I think the short answer is this, that that they're God-breathed and and profitable or useful for shaping our lives as a community. We believe this is the story of God given to us by God himself. And to put that in perspective, that's an amazing thing to believe. that's remarkable in in my mind. Uh, But before we end, I want to camp out for just a moment on what we mean when we say that all of Scripture is is God-breathed. What what does that mean to be God-breathed or inspired by God or that we say, hey, we got the Scriptures from God? Because I think some of us, um, inside and outside of the church, wrestle with this, right? We wrestle with where did the Bible come from and why should we trust it? And what do you mean when you say these words were given to us by God? Because the Bible didn't drop out of heaven, right? Like Moses didn't go up on the mountain and come down with like the NIV, like nicely bound in fake leather or whatever. Like, hey, we got it. Like, it it didn't just fall out of the sky. Um, It was actually written by human beings. And that isn't controversial. The scriptures actually tell us, in most cases, who, who the author was or, or where it came from. It, it was written, uh, and in some cases compiled and edited, by human beings. And that shouldn't be controversial, and it shouldn't actually um, lower our, our view of uh, the scriptures. And so, um, w- what we mean it, we believe that, um, that, that God, bre- they, they were breathed out by God, that they were in- inspired by God, but that it was actually written with human hands. And, and so this is where things get a little interesting because it, it would be possible for you to spend tens of thousands of dollars and go to seminary and take all the right courses on where the Bible came from and how it came together. And it would be possible to study all of that deeply and walk away saying, well, surely... This was just written and edited by humans. Like surely this is just a, just a human book and not a divine one. And yet um, Jews and Christians after them have always maintained that it is a divine book. I agree. It, meaning that through, through 
these human writings, I have one person like giving me amens over there, um, that through these human writings, um, God speaks to his covenant people, that these are actually the words of God uh, given to us. And so in that sense, in the um, historical Christian Jewish view, it's actually a, a human and a divine book. There are kind of two voices that are speaking and writing uh, simultaneously. And in our postmodern culture, uh, kind of born out of the Enlightenment, they tend to think that you have to have it one way or the other. That, that it either has to be a human book, um, purely formed by humans, and it's just kind of us shooting in the dark and guessing, or you have to claim that it is a divine book that sort of dropped out of heaven or that Moses came down uh, out of, off the mountain with uh, the new King James or whatever. Um, and, and yet we maintain that it's actually more mysterious than that, that there's actually something more uh, profound uh, going on, perhaps even uh, paradoxical. Karshi, if you throw up the painting, this is the best um, kind of illustration that I've seen. It wasn't meant to illustrate this point, but kind of this paradoxical um, relationship between God writing and human writing that, that we maintain both authors were distinct, God and people, and yet they operated as one, simultaneously bringing something into being in such a way that both parties were actually intimately involved at the same time. And if that's true, if, if that paradox is true, then we aren't forced to say that it dropped out of heaven, and we aren't forced to say that it's only a human book that people just made up to the best of their ability. In reality, it is a, a thoroughly human book that speaks God's words to his people, and God was intimately involved in guiding the authors and forming this book to the point that we say hey the bible actually is, is is divine in that sense it actually has authority over our lives though to clarify uh, it really only has authority to the extent that we're in relationship with jesus to, to the extent that we're his kind of covenant people in fact jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to what? The Bible? The scriptures? Your translation of the Bible? No. Has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Is our allegiance to a book? I'd argue no. I think primarily... Our allegiance is to Jesus, and he's actually the one with authority. Jesus, as the risen king, has authority over my life. That, that, that's the primary expression of my faith. Well, how, how is that authority expressed? That authority is expressed primarily in and through the scriptures. It's expressed through them, but it's actually rooted in his authority that was given to him by the Father as the risen king over all creation. And so when we say the Bible is authoritative, it's, it's rooted in that, that, that we accepted the Bible as this authoritative part of our lives as we entered covenant relationship with him. When we gave our lives to Jesus and said, yes, we want to follow you and be your disciples. Moses started writing the scriptures 
so that we would remember the acts of God in history and his covenant people would understand how to exist in relationship with him and participate in God's redemptive mission on earth. Is the New Testament any different? No. No, Paul and Matthew and Peter and John are just writing down the acts of God in history for us to remember and then teaching us how to operate as God's new covenant people. Here's all the outworkings of new life and new identity and and this place of privilege that you've entered. Here's how to participate in God's redemptive mission on earth. Here's how to live with a full understanding of the life and identity that God has already given you and the fullness of life that is still to come in the future. This is one unified story spanning thousands of years, breathed out and inspired by God through human agency, useful for forming and shaping us increasingly into the image of God and preparing us to live the life that he calls us to. We actually recognize as a community that Jesus is alive and that he has authority over our lives and this is just the primary expression of that authority. And and please don't misunderstand what I mean when I say the Bible has authority over our lives. When I say that this has authority over our lives, what I don't mean is that you're not to question the Bible or not to question anyone's interpretation of the Bible um, or or even challenge your own understanding and interpretation of the Bible. A a high and authoritative view of Scripture um, doesn't mean that that you don't wrestle and that you don't ask questions and that you don't um, dialogue with people or challenge uh, the people around you in the way that the Scriptures are interpreted and applied. And I I think that's important enough that, that I want us to see how that fits into the bigger picture of biblical interpretation. So, so as we close, and this is, this is one way to kind of create a spectrum of biblical interpretation because there are lots of ways to actually approach the Bible and, and study the Bible, and um, this is one way of thinking about it. On um, one end of the spectrum, you have authority over, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have what we would call authority under. And, and so on one end, with authority over, uh, those communities tend to interpret the Bible through their own worldview, culture, and beliefs over and against the plain words of Scripture and what they seem to be saying. And, and that tends to start in a very subtle way. It tends to start with communities or churches just emphasizing some doctrines to the neglect of others. And so you get, um, they'll teach grace, but they'll never teach God as judge. And they'll teach Jesus as the servant washing your feet, but they'll never teach Jesus as king. And they might teach Jesus as a, a rabbi, but they won't teach Jesus as the crucified one. And, and so they tend to uh, start by picking and choosing, and that picking and choosing can be deeply kind of colored uh, by the politics and the pop culture of the day. They kind of emphasize what's acceptable or what we should talk about or what we want to say is real and what isn't. And the other things, the other realities that the scriptures speak of, 
tend to get neglected and then marginalized, if not outright rejected by the community. And so they start asking these questions, hey, do we really need the brutality of the cross in our modern day world? Like, like aren't we past all of that and, and sacrifice and like, aren't we over that? I mean, do, does God's sexual ethic really have any place in, in, in the 21st century? I mean, are we really prepared to believe that Jesus performed miracles or that that was just a historical misunderstanding? And so they ask, in asking those questions, typically the answer is no. There's no place for those things in our day and age. And so heaven is real because um, we love that, but not hell. And grace is real, but not judgment. And most of Jesus' teachings um, we can adopt. Um, but of course, his resurrection never happened and his miracles didn't either. The, it, it's this uh, enlightenment, postmodern thinking that says, I know best and I will edit the scriptures to fit my enlightened understanding and reject or explain the rest away. Well, when Jesus talked about marriage, what he really meant was, fill in the blank. Well, when Jesus talked about hell, what he really meant was, when the scriptures talked about resurrection, what they really were saying was, and you start down that road, and then in the end, the scriptures have no authority over your life or community in any sense of the word. And so you end up with um, churches that kind of have the Christian label on the billboard out front, but they don't believe Jesus' miracles, and they ignore God's sexual ethic, and they don't believe that the resurrection actually happened. So that's the risk uh, of, of one end of the spectrum of authority over. My own thoughts and interpretations and beliefs actually win out over the plain words of Scripture. And the culture gets to dictate what we believe and what we don't believe at any given time or century. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, I'm told, in line with this Enlightenment thinking, would actually cut pages out of the Scripture that he didn't agree with. That, that's authority over. We don't need this. I know how to edit this. I'll decide what's real and what's not. If you don't agree with something that the, in the scriptures, then obviously you're right as the enlightened one, and the scriptures are wrong. Surely they're outdated. Surely they are homophobic. Surely they are something of purely human origin that I need to edit and screen. So, so that's how the thinking goes on, on one end. And just to be clear, as a community, we completely reject that line of thinking. We say, no, uh, the scriptures are God-breathed and they speak accurately about him and reality. And therefore, we submit ourselves as followers of Jesus to the authority of Scripture. So if Scripture clearly says something and we don't agree or the passing culture of the day doesn't agree, well, in our minds, we know who got it wrong. We did. Because what the Scriptures have to say isn't always easy to hear. Paul says, hey, this is actually useful for like rebuking and challenging and shaping and reworking your heart. And those things though necessary, are not fun or comfortable. In the narcissistic modern West, the scriptures will, also, will often come as a slap in the face because we don't like what they say. 
We don't like what they say about sex. We don't like what they say about power. We don't like what they say about chasing our impulses. And, and so we would rather ha- have authority over those things and edit the rest out. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have authority under which I would place our church on that end of the spectrum, but there are some pitfalls that churches on this end of the spectrum commonly fall into that I want to talk about as we close. So we would be joined with the churches on this end of the spectrum in saying, no, 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 the uh, the scriptures have authority over us that our opinions don't actually uh, change or override the reality that the scriptures speak of. But... These camps uh, occasionally fall into equally flawed problems of interpretation on the other end of the spectrum. And in fact, it can be a reaction to what happens in authority over, because they look at all of the doctrines that are being neglected over there, and then they swing the other way and overemphasize what's been neglected to the neglect of the things that were emphasized in the first place. And so you have plenty of uh, hell and judgment but not radical grace and new identity. And, and, and there's kind of this like fear that's always hanging over your shoulders and not this like freedom and, and joy in God. Do you, do you see how they can go the, the opposite direction on some of those interpretation problems? Um, and, and so in addition um, to, to kind of overemphasizing, overcompensating, and saying, hey, it's all about hell and judgment, God's sexual ethic, and whatever else, to the exclusion of other really important doctrines. In addition to kind of an overreaction, overemphasis, um, there also is kind of a mentality among many of these authority under churches that says our interpretation is the only valid and biblical interpretation, and no one inside or outside of the church is to question it. So some of you ha- have been in those churches or experienced that. They say, hey, we know everything that the Bible says. We know exactly how to interpret it. Our interpretation wins. And if you don't like it, then you can get out. All right? That, that's sort of the mentality over there. That was a joke. But The problem with this sort of mentality is that it stifles curiosity, it stifles creativity, and actually makes us less engaged with the scriptures that they claim to know so well. Um, And and honestly, there are a lot of churches on on, on this end, and this is where we have to be careful, that say, hey, we've arrived at an interpretation, and this is the only way to interpret it, so everyone else is a heretic. And, and, and there are places where the Bible is clear, it's black and white, but there are a lot of places where it's gray, and, and we have to wrestle and engage and practice Haggah meditation before God and say, God, what, what does this mean? And, and, and so what we do as a community is that where the Bible is black and white, we are black and white. And, and, and where the scriptures are gray, we debate the topic with Matt Karsh and we politely inform him that his opinion is incorrect. I mean, can we all agree on that? Can I, can I get an amen? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but instead, what we do as a community 
I'm glad he doesn't have a mic right now. Um, But instead, what we do as a community is that we ask healthy questions, knowing that this community is a safe place for any question that we have about the Bible. Um, And and there are times uh, we have to recognize that nobody has this all figured out, right? The black and white stuff, I hope we can all agree on that. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that none of us have figured out. And so we engage and we read and we dialogue and we ask questions and debate when necessary. And we um, just recognize that though the scriptures are the inspired work of God, our interpretation is not always so. We, we don't know everything. We don't get everything right. There are times and places where I understand like Jesus came He died on a cross, he rose again, and as a result, every single human being is invited into eternity with him to be part of his family. We can say amen to that. That that's amazing. That's worth sharing. And if you haven't placed your faith in that yet, that's the invitation this morning. That's what what we all believe. But, But sometimes, that's about all I'm certain of. I start reading the other stuff and I'm like, I... I don't, I, don't always, I don't always get it. I don't always understand everything. And, and so the rest requires us to engage and to learn and to practice the lost and dying art called reading and maybe even a little Haggah meditation along the way. And so as a community, as we gather together on Sundays, we study this ancient, provocative, holy, inspired, challenging, living, breathing thing that we call the scriptures. And we allow them to shape our worldview, to shape and challenge who we are, to ignite us for the purposes of God. And as we do that, we are ushered into the story of what he's up to in the world. You actually find yourself in the middle of that reality. And so we remember, this is what we use the scriptures for, we remember the acts of God in history. And we recognize that when Jesus came, he established a new covenant by his blood on the cross. And then as we enter that covenant, which by analogy is not unlike a marriage, as we enter that covenant with him, We receive forgiveness, we receive salvation, and we receive the terms of that covenant. The way that our relationship will be defined moving forward from that moment. What's contained in here is this new, glorious, counterintuitive way of life that's now possible in Jesus. And we say yes to King Jesus, and as we do, we say yes to his authority expressed through the scriptures. We recognize Jesus as the risen king, ruling and reigning over all of the universe until all of his enemies will finally be put under his feet and defeated. And then we recognize that as we submit to his authority and seek to participate in the world, this is the inspired word of God that's going to guide us along the way. And so we commit as a community to reading this document, to approaching it with reverence, uh, to studying it, to meditating on it, to engaging with it, to asking questions with it, to opening it up every Sunday and engaging in the worldview that it offers and the God that it points us to. For years to come, we're going to be doing that. Let's pray.